Hello, and welcome to the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast with me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. In this series, I talk to astronomers, artists and other fascinating people about our festival themes, winter, darkness and the night sky. The Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast is created by Onlanta in association with the Scotsman. Our 2022 festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, Highlands and Islands Enterprise and Culture and Business Fund Scotland. Sunset Reports, which is screening as part of the 2022 Dark Skies Festival, is a 52-minute film in which artist Juliana Capes describes an entire sunset, moment by moment. The project emerged from Juliana's work doing audio description for visually impaired people, but you don't have to be visually impaired to appreciate it. Like so much of this Edinburgh-based artist's work, Sunset Reports is a project about brief moments in time, moments to be treasured before they quickly, inevitably disappear. I wanted to talk to Juliana about the ideas that shape her work and what sunsets mean to her. I began, as I often do with these podcasts, by asking her to describe what she does for a living. I'm a visual artist. Um, I also say visual artist because I work across a lot of different kinds of media. I'm not just a painter or a sculptor or a filmmaker. In fact, it's not really just visual artist anymore either because I tend to sort of write and, yeah. Anyway, I am an artist. That's what I do. And I also, um, increasingly over the the last sort of decade or more, have worked as a visual describer in kind of Scottish arts galleries and museums. Um, I've always worked in Scottish art galleries and museums, my whole kind of artistic career. I think when you when you are an artist, you you really have to, you know, work across um, and uh, you know take work where you find it. And I've always been very very good with people. I've always really enjoyed people, um, so it's kind of been natural for me to to work in in public venues and work with art audiences, really. So. Yeah, And Sunset Reports, the film that we're showing as part of the Dark Skies Festival opening night, kind of grew out of that work, is that right? Yeah, um, yeah, I guess so. It was um, interesting because probably about sort of 10 years ago, um, artists who work in kind of education or galleries or work with audiences they, I don't know, they, they tended to keep their, their practice separate, you know, their artistic practice, the, the things they made, like, separate from their teaching or from their um, participatory work. Um, and it almost felt back then, it was almost like it's kind of dirty little secret, really, that you had to make your living in another way. Mm. That you didn't actually sell enough artwork or get enough commissions to make your living in that way. Um, it kind of felt that way. But increasingly over the, the last decade or more, it's not the case anymore at all. There's a real, um, you know, a real synchronicity really between um, what I do when I'm making art and what I do when I'm talking about art or teaching art. Um, and I don't really want to keep them separate. And, you know, I, I really kind of tried to address that probably about five years ago. Hmm. 
also I, I thought I really don't want to keep these two things separate anymore. They, they feel very interconnected to my way of thinking. Um, so I sort of challenged myself to bring them together. Um, and that was, uh, I was really lucky to be supported by um, the Barbican and Creative Scotland who um, were running a, a fellowship that year um, called the Artworks Fellowship that was for artists that were kind of interested in um, thinking about the work they did with people and um, developing that into their own sort of practice and the work they made that was more personal. So so it was a really kind of deliberate process, really. Um, and I've always been you know, really interested in, in the process of visual description, audio description. I found it a really... Um, a really creative practice you know it feels to me a really similar part of my brain gets used a really similar kind of muscle gets used when I'm describing um as to when I'm you know painting or sculpting or filmmaking it, it, it you know it's it's a process of making something you describe something you try and make an artwork in someone's head through your words um so so it was really interesting to try for me to try and think about how to bring that practice into, you know, some of the preoccupations and and ideas that I have in my own personal practice. And the Artworks Fellowship gave me the opportunity to do that. So why did you want to make a, a film about a sunset? I think there's a couple of things that interested me. Um I mean, I'm always been obsessed with sunsets, like everybody is. You know, it's that kind of daily event that, you know, as soon as a beautiful sunset is in the sky, everybody's photographing it, everybody's trying to to share that. Apparently, it's the most uploaded image on the internet as a sunset, um, which I found really interesting. Um, you know, and I think it's something that that everybody can relate to, but you know, it's a daily event that almost any, almost nobody sits and watches. You know, you don't watch the whole thing. You just kind of pass it. Um, you rarely make the time to actually spend with it. Uh, I find it a really interesting phenomenon. Um, and also, at the time, I was you know, really interested in the process of description and, and through my work with people with a visual impairment over the last 20 years the most thing I ever get asked about description is how do you describe colour how do you describe colour to somebody who can't see um so I was really interested in trying to describe colour and trying to think of something coloured to describe and and sunset felt like a really kind of obvious colour event that happens every day that's a and the colour event in all our lives that um, I really, you know, felt like the challenge of describing was was a really interesting one. Um, you know, and it, it has a lot of resonance, I think, as well. You know, the the sun is obvious that it's it's kind of it's our god, really, isn't it? It's our it's the main force on earth, and you know, a really massive amount of symbolism and connection to us so something that you know I, I felt like I might try and describe 
I mean, it must be quite a challenge, though, describing it over that amount of time, because, I mean, this, this film is an entire sunset, and it's about 52 minutes, right? Yeah, well, the, the process of sort of simultaneous description, I find, is such an interesting one to, to do, because mentally your brain's having to try and keep up with the thing that you're describing, and the words, you know, they have to kind of tumble out, and they, they come from a process of, of already um, working out a vocabulary, of already, you know, having researched and thought about the thing that you are going to simultaneously describe. And and I was really interested in trying to sort of create that process in describing a sunset and try and um, think about the, the process that sunset was going to go through and research it to the point where I knew what was going to happen to a certain extent. Um, I'd already been through that process a lot and thought about the vocabulary and the dis- different stages and, and how that might happen. Um, in fact, you know, I have hundreds of sunset reports. That's why the film's called Sunset Reports, because I went through that process, you know, so many times before, every time that there was a wonderful sunset, (gasps) drop everything, get the camera out, right, okay, describe. And like quite often no words would come out or quite often there wouldn't be any colour in the sky because it's really unpredictable, the sunset. You think you know when it's going to happen and all of a sudden it doesn't. It's really, yeah, it's worse than weather for for, um, being able to predict it. But so yes, yeah, so the sort of process of trying to work out how to describe it was a, a really long-winded one. Um, the film is actually the last attempt, um, the one that actually clicked and I felt like was a de- was a, was the description. But there's plenty of failed attempts that happened before that. And I remember um, coming up to the Isle of Lewis with a plan. Um, what a naive person coming up to the Isle of Lewis in October thinking this is going to be wonderful like every day I will watch and record the sunset and I will do a description every day and then the next morning I'll edit that and I'll I'll revise it and I'll think about it and then the next night I'll describe it again and by the end of the week I'll have nailed this description it'll be amazing and then of course I I came up to the Isle of Lewis and on the first night there was a sunset, um, but there wasn't for the next next six nights. I think it was the weather closed in and we uh, it was literally just cloud and wind and rain for the entire week. Didn't see a single colour in the sky. And actually, I, I, I committed to the process for the first few nights. I, um, I went up the hill with my tripod and my gloves and a windshield for my microphone and tried to describe the non-sunset um, until the camera blew away. <laughs> so actually I spent the rest of the week um, researching, just researching colour and researching, um, you know, the way colour has been perceived and described. Um, you know, across history and across cultures. And and actually it was a really fruitful week just to really go deep and, and think a lot about colour and try and build that vocabulary um, that I needed to be able to to describe the sunset. Um, yeah. And then the finished film, I think, showed at the fruit market in, in Edinburgh uh, sometime after that. Um, what sort of responses have you had to it? 
things that surprised you? I guess my response to it was the one that most surprised me, actually. I found it really emotional um, because the the final take that I um, that ended up being the keeper, um, I really didn't expect it to happen. It was actually um, it was the about three years after my mum died. I was going through this process um, and obviously still quite deep in grief um, and. During that three years, we had to clear out my mum's house and get it ready for sale um, and with my, my siblings. Um, and the, the day that I got that final sunset film was the, the day that I spent my final day in my mum's house um, and the final night in my mum's house. And that sunset is the final sunset over my mum's house. And my mum's house was just on the beach um, and when I realised that the sky was turning and it was going to be a good sunset, I ran down the beach and over the sand hills for the last time and watched the sunset over my mum's house. And I finally realised that that was the reason why none of the other descriptions had clicked because it needed the emotion, you know, to be able to access the the um, the descriptions that I were looking for. It, it needed an emotional connection and, and something to to click to to bring those descriptions to life and have the emotional resonance. So it really surprised me in the end because actually what I thought was going to be quite a kind of academic or poetic sort of exercise actually became something really personal. And then when it was in the exhibition and and also since when it's been sort of publicly viewed, I find it like really kind of bearing my soul and bearing a lot of grief. And um, so I actually find it really quite difficult to listen to it and to hear people talk about it in some ways. Um, But I mean, you know, that story that I've just said, then it's not explicit in the work. You wouldn't necessarily know that unless you heard me tell you. Um, But I kind of hope that, you know, I think all the best art has that kind of cusp of, the personal and the universal within it and you know personal sort of stories and emotion I think makes hopefully hopefully makes good art so um yeah well sunsets so often kind of represent a goodbye don't they and you know if you think of the number of films where the sun is going down and that represents the end of something or um a, a character passing on to the next life yeah, exactly. And I, I find that's such an interesting thing too, when it, it isn't at all, it's just a turning, it's just mm. a continual of a process. But, you know, I always really like the way that, you know, human beings put all these poetics and meaning on, you know, natural phenomenon and find ways to, to believe and find ways to make sense. And, you know, that's the thing that I suppose, you know, there's a thread in a lot of my work this kind of reaching for meaning and sense in in natural natural world and natural phenomenons. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, the film had a, a really great response as well. From, I had a lot of help from um, members of the visually impaired community that I've worked in, in Edinburgh, and um, I had a great response from that community too. And, you know, I, I've also been reached out to by you know, people across the world who are visually impaired or blind who have had the film passed on to them and 
have really, you know, really enjoyed experiencing a sunset. And I, you know, I'm really happy for that because I really wanted it to work in a, you know, a dual way that it could be an access tool. It could be a way for for somebody who hadn't experienced a sunset to experience it. I wanted that to happen as much as I wanted it to be a piece of contemporary art that could work for a sighted audience too. Mm. Um, and, you know, for people to be able to enjoy it on a conceptual level as well. So, so I've been really pleased with the response that it's got. And, you know, I, I continue to, to think about the ideas inherent in that piece of work in, in, you know, work that I've subsequently made and I'm still making it's um still life for me mm. process um I wanted to talk a bit about your other work actually and, and how Sunset Reports kind of relates to all that I mean one of the obvious things to say about a sunset is that it's a temporary thing it's a fleeting thing it's it's a beautiful incredible moment but then it's it's, it's gone with it within minutes and this is something, you know, this this fleetingness of, of, of things, this, uh, the transience of things, is something that comes up a, a lot in your work. I mean, a, a lot of your work is created from objects that are very easily destroyed. For example, you know, you've made several pieces with water balloons, um, one with paper airplanes. It seems to me that there's there's a thematic connection here. Mm, I guess I I really like ephemeral objects. I like the sort of ephemera of life um aesthetically um but also i think i I think it comes from a discomfort of being part of the generation of humans that are just absolutely bound by their stuff you know i just i feel like i'm so weighed down a lot of the time by possessions and by stuff you know that i don't know how many times i've had to move house in my life but um because i've mainly rented my my adult life I only managed to um buy a house to live in about sort of eight years ago and before that I must have moved house about 20 times and continually moving van loads of stuff around the place and just sort of being really attached to objects it's really difficult to throw anything away I think in terms of making art I just don't really want to make anything that I have to carry around with me anymore I just um I find it really difficult to to do that. Like I used to paint, I used to paint on canvas in oils and and every time you make a painting on canvas in oils, you have another object that you have to carry around with you unless you sell it to somebody, of course. But I've never been that interested in selling work. I'm not very good at um, thinking about art as a commodity. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I tend to, not really want to make something that lasts yeah and I'm also I think I'm usually a bit more interested in the idea um behind something and and how that develops than I am necessarily in the an object that will last ideas last longer so even though you're, you're talking about it being quite temporary i mean i am kind of attracted to ephemeral ephemerality i like the permanence of ideas and the permanence of um you know the sunset i mean it's a really permanent thing really it happens every day Mm. all the time i think a really good example of this um is a piece of work that you made called anole um which is 
a, a sculpture made from coins on the pavement that's made kind of in collaboration with lots of other people. And yeah. then at the end of the day, all the coins kind of are taken and go away. And so, so yeah, I, I really love that because the, while the artwork disappears, it's this very powerful experience for everybody involved. And that, you know, that's what stays with you. Yeah, the idea and, and you know, Anul was kind of, you know, like I was saying before, I like the the propensity of human beings to, you know, to put meaning into things and come up with um, belief systems. Um, and Anul was kind of a lot about believing in things. It was, you know, about um, how if you find a penny on the pavement, then it's lucky. But if you step on a crack, it's unlucky. So if you put the penny in the crack, does that annul the luck? Um, so, you know, it's an, ex- it's, it's an experiment. It's um, hammering um, pennies into the cracks until you fill up an area of street as broad as your, the amount of money you're hammering in. I, u- I use it typically when I make a null, I transfer the, the fee that I'm given by whatever gallery or arts festival pay me to do it into pennies um so if that's like 500 pounds or something it actually 500 pounds in pennies looks like a huge amount of money usually when people come past when you know the majority of it's hammered into the cracks they're utterly spellbound by it, it does look like that moment where the streets are paved with gold and everybody just runs off into the sunset um it's an extraordinary thing to see um but you know it, it as well as being a kind of comment on belief um, it's also kind of a comment on I don't know public art and mm. and art as a commodity too. This the the way that the money gets transformed into the artwork. The money is the artwork, and then just gets taken away because you know, I leave the the money at the end of the experience. It was kind of like a sort of poetic idea that came from the notion of sun mandalas um, in uh, sort of Eastern cultures. Um, sand is kind of brushed into patterns on the ground as a, a sort of ritual to to bring luck or good fortune um, and then it's just left to be dispersed by the wind um, and you know the luck then travels with the sand and the wind um, quite like that idea thinking about those pennies being dispersed through penny shops or people counting them out to buy a packet of fags um, it's quite lucky finding pennies on the pavement so, so yeah, I, I, and I, I hope, you know, like you say that the idea, the experience stays in people's heads. Um, and I've done that work, you know, several times in different locations and it's always really potent, you know, people always really appreciate it. Even when I did it in France where pennies, you know, pennies didn't have any worth, people still wanted the pennies. They still came back to get them. Mm. They're lucky. So yeah. I remember you once telling me about um, a piece of work you made called Breakers, and I, I think that was with mm. water balloons, wasn't it? And yeah. there were water balloons on, on the pier next to the beach. And at the end of the day, I remember you telling me that, that some teenagers came and popped them all and, and were having a really great time doing yeah. it. That made you really happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they were, you know, you put a water balloon in public, you, 
you're asking for someone to come and pop it. It's no, yeah. it's a temporary thing anyway. And actually, I was really happy that they came along and popped it because I was filming the whole thing. Mm. I had a secret camera hidden in the um, in the bandstand um, that filmed the whole experience. So I made a wee film of the the water balloons coming up and then them coming down again. And it was really inventive seeing them them because they were very high up. So they had to push a wheelie bin over and balance on um, a bicycle. And, and it was quite, yeah, making a ladder out of street furniture to get up and burst these balloons. It looked so much fun. So <laughs> I remember thinking, I don't think I'd ever heard an artist be so happy about other people destroying their work before. You know, I mean, d- destroying art is usually seen as this terrible act of sacrilege. And, and, yeah. and you were really kind of laughing about it. <laughs> Well, you don't. You don't really just. You know. You don't destroy the ideas, though, do you? Mm. You don't. You know. And and that was kind of the experience too. Was that 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 would happen? That it would be an event like that um, where the art would explode almost. Um, it caused quite a stir um, around the area. So yeah, I think that's quite memorable. Um, and the whole the sort of notion of those balloons they. You know, they were meant to be fragile. They were meant to be something that broke. Um, the the balloons were um, installed in the, it was a bandstand on Portobello Prom um, mm. that looks over the, the sea. And I installed them in the shape of a wave um, that was coming out of the bandstand towards the sea. And it was a wave that was about to break um, with the water within them. So, so it was waiting to break. It was... It was why it was there. <laughs> so breakers has several different meanings in this in the, in this uh, title. Yeah, yeah. Um, um talking of ideas, I and mean, the the last time we spoke, you were beginning to work on a piece about rainbows, which is another mm. temporary um, atmospheric phenomenon. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I mean that that comes from a similar place of. Um, one of wanting to to describe colour um, and a rainbow, I think, you know, is a such a difficult thing to describe, such an interesting thing to describe. It's such pure colour. It's so iconic. Um, I don't think I've quite managed to nail the description yet. Watch this space. Um, but as well as that, I think the rainbow, you know, it's such a potent symbol in so many ways, in so many cultures, um, it means so many different things. Um, and for me, it, it's really started to kind of embody, you know, a couple of dual feelings over the last sort of couple of years. One is the the kind of echo anxiety, the sort of climate um, anxiety. Um, it feels to me quite symbolic of that, um, of the... Um, the kind of idea of the the rainbow being there almost as a promise that the flood won't come but the flood is coming <laughs> but it's a symbol of hope and uh, you know the way that as well it's being used in covid too um in in windows by children on pavements in chalk it just feels so full of dissonance to me this sort of symbol of hope but it's so fragile and impermanent as well um 
so I've been I've just been thinking around the rainbow a lot um it's also such a you know if I thought it was difficult to try and catch sunset and describe it a rainbow I don't know what I was thinking you know most of the time now I'm walking around and a rainbow will appear my husband jokes with me that I'm the only person he knows that absolutely hates it when I see a rainbow because a rainbow appear and I'm like I'm not ready but I've got to get my camera out I've got to think of what I've got to say and it just comes out of nowhere I'm like oh no it's a rainbow um <laughs> so uh yeah it's um they take you by surprise they're such a temporary thing that just all of a sudden you know it's so emotional for people to see when it happens so but yeah mm. I, I, but instead of trying to trying to be prepared enough to catch them when they come I've taken to try and make my own recently so um yeah my most recent body of work that um I've been exhibiting at Edinburgh Sculpture Workshop over the winter um is me actually making my own rainbows um I've been sort of gathering them um through moving image filming rainbows on the pavement uh, I don't know if you know consider them rainbows but when the uh, the um, petrol or oil spills out of cars and hits wet pavements um I really mm. like that I really like mm. the sort of the idea of the pavement rainbow for me it kind of embodies the sort of temporary magic of a of an airborne rainbow but then has that dissonance um you know it's an amazing color event still feels like a natural phenomenon but it's actually it's pollution it's disgusting it's sort of simultaneously beautiful and horrific which you know I feel embodies the that kind of echo anxiety and the the feeling that you can't quite enjoy a sunny day anymore because it's the hottest day on hottest day this century or such like um so I've been making my own sculptural pavement rainbows um and recording them and and thinking about how to describe them as well um, so, you know, that's been my most recent body of work. Um, and as for the airborne rainbows, that that's still a work in progress. I'm like, I think I'm almost there in trying to work out how to describe them. The sort of vocabulary is building. I think I just need that event, like uh, going to visit my mum's house with the sunset. I'll get there. I'll get there. It'll happen. Mm. And then I'll share it with you all. Um, but yeah, rainbows. Well, rainbows is something that we do have a lot of on the Isle of Lewis because it rains so much. It's more kind of reliable mm -hmm. to see a rainbow than a sunset. Maybe I need to come back again and do another residential rainbow chasing with you. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> um, the pavement rainbows made me think of um, another piece you did so called uh, Pavement Astronomer. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've lived most of my life in cities. I'm really a, a city lover, city dweller. Um, so I suppose the pavements are kind of, you know, they're my landscapes, they're my um, my vistas. You know, I probably think about pavements in the same way that some people think about fields and hills. Um, I find pavements extraordinarily beautiful. I really love them. Um, and I find that, you know, they're, they're really overlooked, you know, and like, you know, everybody walks over them all the time and I get a little bit obsessed with really these kind of overlooked areas of beauty and interest 
um, in life, you know, small things that mm. perhaps you don't notice, little moments. And I got obsessed for quite a while with, you know, when it rains and the pavements go really dark, you really suddenly notice the, the white spots of chewing gum. Um, they really shine out like stars. And once you start noticing them, now anyone who's listening to this, I guarantee tomorrow you'll notice them a lot. Um, you know, they're everywhere. There's so much chewing gum on the city streets. Um, makes you wonder who's chewing it all. <laughs> and I love the way that, you know, the, the, the patterns that they fall in on the pavement, you know, are so seemingly random. But, you know, you start to look at them for, for a while and you start to see patterns in them. And it was reminding me of the, you know, presumably the same process that happened with the early astronom um, astrologers um you know where they they started to to see the patterns in the stars um and uh and draw the mm -hmm. you know the legends of the constellations so you know it just occurred to me to to go through the same process really with the the chewing gum so i i am the pavement astronomer um i find my chewing gum constellations and uh, yeah, I joined the chewing gum up with chalk to make the um, the galaxies of the pavement. So, um, and that's a it's a similar sort of piece of work to the annul to the pennies piece that I've done it several times in many different places. Mm. And um, obviously, it's a it's an aesthetic um, experience. It, it looks in, you know, it looks like a star map across the city streets, um, mm. but it's also, you know, it's an, it's interactive. It's an experience with the conversations that I have with the people that come and talk to me and ask me what I'm doing. And I say, I'm a pavement astronomer. Um, and the idea then, you know, it, it goes into their head, you know, that this idea of noticing what's underfoot, noticing the small things around you. And also, you know, looking up looking down looking at the stars looking at the gutters like I don't really differentiate between the two I think you know the the patterns that are in nature can either be very very small or very very large you know they're still the same patterns repeat and mm. the way that humans interpret them is the same you know regardless of whether they're chewing gum on the pavement or stars in the heavens um so that's where that piece of work's from. I don't think I've told you this before, but um, when I started running um, this Dark Skies Festival up on Lewis, one of my first thoughts was, I've got to get Jules up here to do pavement astronomy. <laughs> and then I realised, of course, after I lived here for a little while, that there are hardly any pavements. And the pavements that we have <laughs> don't really have chewing gum on them. So unless we were actually going to bring some chewing gum and, and pavement it wouldn't have worked sadly so there's no chewing gum in lewis no um, chewers here not very much i mean there must be but uh you know i've, I've walked around the pavements uh, of stormway kind of looking for chewing gum and i haven't seen very much so there you go. Oh. <laughs> i remember one time i got commissioned to to do this i think it was in nottingham and the night before um the council came along and started power washing all the chewing gum off <laughs> Um, I thought I was going to make the local paper going and saying, no, stop, <laughs> stop cleaning that rubbish off the floor. Um, well, had they found out about you? Or was it just a group? No, no, it was just a, a regular cleaning event. <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> I think councils do power wash it off every now and again. 
um you know it's quite disgusting when you think about it but yeah so it's the pavement rainbows <laughs> um but instead of pavement astronomer we have you um doing sunset reports and i'm delighted that we're getting to um show this film as part of the festival this year i just think you know if you're going to do a dark skies festival what better way to open it than with a sunset so it just seems very appropriate um so when you were on lewis um before and you didn't get to see any sunsets um, you said you spent a lot of time researching colour. So, yeah, just to finish off, I mean, tell me the, some of the kinds of things you've discovered about colour. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating the amount of um, different um, opinions and, and ideas around colour throughout the centuries and history. One really interesting thing that really got my imagination was um, that it's only relatively recently that humans have had a word for the colour blue. Um, apparently this is, um, if you, if you look into sort of ancient literature, um, so, you know, like, uh, the Icelandic sagas or, you know, um, literature of Iran or the Middle East or, um, South America, a lot of these, you know, ancient scripts don't have any reference to the colour blue. Um, in fact, I think it's the, um, the Iliad correct me if I'm wrong, anyone listening to this, um, it's either the Iliad or the, what's the other one? The Odyssey? Yeah, Odyssey, yeah. And those ones, they they refer to the sea as being wine-dark. That's the way they describe it. They don't say it's blue, they say it's wine-dark, which I thought was really interesting. And I think in Gaelic too, isn't there, there's no actual word for you know true blue mm. there's more a sort of greeny blue or a gray blue mm. um was it glass and yeah so there's many many times that the the color blue isn't in ancient literature in fact the the first time it really gets mentioned a lot is around egypt and that's when the first time that it got made into paint into pigment um so it kind of was, I found it fascinating the fact that you know the theory is apparently that because there wasn't much, there wasn't pigment there wasn't paint it wasn't in clothes it's not really in food you don't get a massive amount of fruit or vegetables or flowers that are blue it's not a massively common color apparently so that was the the sort of theory as to why there wasn't a word for the color blue but it just kind of confounded me because I just thought but the sky, <laughs> the sky blue. How can you not have a word for the what massively encompasses around mm. you? But then, apparently, the the sort of thinking around that is is because because it's so present and all around us, it's actually just invisible. You don't really see it because it, it's always there, and you don't need a, a word for the thing that's just the background. It's kind of default. And then also maybe the sky isn't always blue. Maybe the sky isn't blue. It's off quite often sunset colours or it's grey when you're looking for a sunset. So, yeah, so this idea of blue not actually existing I found fascinating. It's really worth reading into if anyone's interested at home. And there's many other kind of, um, you know, stories about different cultures having different words for, for different colours that we call different things depending on their the need for a word for that colour. Um, you know, maybe they need more words for a particular colour that is more 
um, present in the environment they live in or more important in the environments they live in. Um, and they have less need for a, a colour that they don't see or use very often and doesn't have a big connection for them. Mm. So it kind of, you know, reminds me how much, you know, language is about experience and about, you know, emotion and connection as much as it's um, standardised. So just kind of inspired me really to build my own vocabularies. Mm. So what are you working on next? Um, I'm working on a, well, immediately in March, I'm, I'm going to um, Cove Park, which is a extraordinary um, art centre in Argyll and Butte in Scotland. Um, Cove Park's one of the um, climate beacons this year. There are um, several centres, art centres around Scotland that are partnering with um, environmental organisations around Scotland to be climate beacons um, to talk about climate change and talk about the necessity for for people to get involved and think about it. Um, and uh, Cove Park are partnering with the Argyle Countryside Trust um, to think about the Caledonian rainforest. Mm. Um, fascinating. The Caledonian rainforest is, you know, a habitat that we've got a lot of down the west coast of Scotland. And I didn't realise apparently Scotland has the most of this habitat in the world. And it's a really, really important habitat in terms of climate change because of the amount of moss that it contains. Um, so, yeah, so I am going to Cove Park to um, be uh, artist in residence um, and make some work around the Caledonian rainforest. I'm really excited to be going and working with um, some of the local schools there and the children there to hopefully, uh, I think we're we're going to get into the forests and make some films and make some descriptions and and see how we can extrapolate out from these these really precious environments that are just on our doorsteps you know did you know that Scotland had a rainforest I don't think I did no Scotland has a rainforest yeah so that's what I'm doing immediately um this year but yeah I am I'm still I'm still thinking about rainbows mm -hmm. as well um that's kind of an ongoing train of thought at the moment um yeah so hopefully that film will will come to fruition at some point this year well i hope you have a wonderful inspiring time in the forest forest is one thing we can't really provide on the isle of lewis we have very little of that um but we're delighted to have you as part of um our dark skies festival this year thank you for um, allowing us to to share your film well, thank you. It's a privilege to, to open the festival and I think it's a really poetic start. I really hope people enjoy it. We're happy to hear anyone's feedback as well. Please feel free to get in touch. You've been listening to the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast. The Hebridean Dark Skies Festival takes place each February at Onlanta and across the Isle of Lewis. The festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, Highlands and Islands Enterprise, and Culture and Business Fund Scotland, in partnership with Lewes Castle College, UHI, Stornoway Astronomical Society, Callanish Visitor Centre, and Gallon Head Community Trust. Our podcast is created by Anne Lanter, in association with The Scotsman, and presented by me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. The sound was mixed by Hamish Brown. If you'd like to find out more about the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, visit Anne Lanter's website, www.lanter.com.